Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Boxer size. Margaret paced in the computer room, which was tough to do, considering she could only take about five steps before she had to turn a 180. The PVC fabric on her legs zip-zipped as she walked. She was still wearing the suit, sans helmet, in order to save time when she had to go back in for surgery. Dew was already out of his. She'd never seen him in scrubs before. Clarence walked into the control room. Did you reach, Murray? she asked. Is it okay with him if we go ahead and save this woman's life now? Clarence looked at Dew, then back at her. What's the problem? she asked. Come on, guys, chop, chop. Time's a-wasting. Dew looked to the floor. Clarence's face was a blank. We can't operate, he said. What are you talking about? We've got everything we can get from her. Not everything, Clarence said. Not yet. She stared at him for a moment. Understanding flared up, but part of her fought it down. She didn't want to believe what she was hearing. You, Clarence, you can't be serious. You don't think we're going to let those things hatch out of that woman, do you? We have orders, he said. Clarence had known what Murray's answer would be. That's why he'd insisted they wait, delay the surgery. If he hadn't fed her that bullshit about keeping people in the loop, she'd already have Bernadette Smith on the operating table. Margaret had heard the phrase, seeing red. She understood it in theory, but she had never actually seen red. Until now. A rage exploded inside her like nothing she'd ever felt. We are not going to let that woman die! She took two steps forward and started jabbing her finger into Clarence's broad chest. She could have also screamed at Dew, sure, but she'd almost expected this from a cold-blooded killer like him. But from Clarence? A man she'd made love to? That woman has a ten-year-old son who just lost his father, she said. Who just lost two sisters. I can save Bernadette. I know it. We're going to operate on her. And right now, you rotten bastards. Do you hear me? Right now. Clarence shook his head. We can't do that, Margaret. That's Dr. Montoya to you, asshole. Doctor, as in sworn to protect life. We have orders, Clarence said. Orders from who? From that slimy bastard Murray Longworth? From Ogden? From him? Margaret pointed at Dew, who kept staring at the floor. Who the fuck thinks they can order me to let this woman die? The president, Clarence said quietly. It's from the top. Executive order. Is that right? Well, maybe he can order you to go gas some Jews while you're at it. How about that for following orders? Or maybe he can order Dew here to tie up some nigger and give him a whipping just to set an example. Clarence's face wrinkled in anger, but she didn't care. In fact, she liked it. She wanted to get a reaction out of this asshole, this goose-stepping asshole. How could she have ever thought she loved a cold-hearted machine like this? What do you think, Do? Margaret screamed. If you were ordered to do it, that would make it okay now, wouldn't it? Margaret, Clarence said. Please, calm down. Didn't I tell you it's Dr. Montoya? Didn't I, Agent Otto? You don't understand. We have... 
Margaret threw a straight right jab. He was still talking when she did. Her fist hit the bottom of his left front tooth. His head snapped back from pain, not from the force of her punch, and his hand shot to his mouth. She had seen anger on his face before, but his new expression went way beyond that. This was fury. His eyes cut through her rage a bit, made her realize that no matter how mad she got, she was still a small woman and someone his size could hurt her. Hurt her bad any time he wanted to, or any time he lost control. His nostrils flared. He stood up to his full six-foot, three-inch height. You broke my tooth, he said. His voice remained quiet, but it was no longer calm. Agent Clarence Otto, her lover, correction, her former lover, was about one ounce shy of knocking her right the fuck out. Leave, Dew said. Clarence's head snapped to the left, and he glared at Dew. For a second, Margaret thought his rage might manifest itself on Dew Phillips. That's an order, Dew said quietly. Clarence glared at him for another few seconds, then looked at Margaret, hate in his eyes. He turned and walked out of the trailer. You need to get a grip, Dr. Montoya, Dew said. We're in a very bad situation here, and you're smart enough to understand the big picture. Do you have that first aid kit in here? And why the fuck do you need a first aid kit? Dew pointed down to her right fist. Because you're bleeding all over the place. Margaret felt the hot wetness a second before she lifted her hand. Only when she saw it did she feel the pain. Her right ring finger was split wide open at the base knuckle, cut by a piece of broken tooth wedged between the torn skin and the bone. With her left hand, she opened a cabinet and pulled out the plastic first aid kit. One-handed, she lifted its lid and rummaged for a suture needle and some gauze. Dew held out his left hand, palm up. I don't need your help, Phillips. Yes, you do. His hand was still waiting for hers. My left hand is fine, Margaret said. I'll be happy to split that one open on your tooth if you push me. Clarence Otto is a gentleman, Dew said. I'm not. I'm a firm believer in equal rights. You hit me, you'll be spitting up blood. Then if I know Otto, he's going to come after me because I hit his girl. He's bigger than me, so I'll have to knee him in the balls, then probably break his right arm to make him stay down. Margaret just stared at him. Dew talked in a slow, steady voice, a smooth voice. Even while he was talking about nothing but violence, his voice calmed her. Every degree her temper dropped, the pain in her hand went up correspondingly. Do you want to know how I'll break his arm, Dr. Montoya? Images of Perry Dossie flashed through her mind. Images of the huge man curled up on a hotel room floor, bleeding from Dew's handiwork. Her brain superimposed Clarence Otto over Perry Dossie. Dew's left hand was still out, palm up. No, she said. I don't want to know. She lifted her bloody right hand and put it in his palm. He picked the tooth out of her knuckle and then put it on the computer counter. Otto might want that back he said. Aren't you scientist types supposed to be above the fray and all that? I'm not going to let that woman die, Margaret said. What just happened doesn't change anything. I'm going to operate. No, you're not. Dew pressed gauze into the wound, pressed hard, and held it. 
Margaret hissed at the pain. What you're going to do, Dr. Montoya, is what you're told. She started to protest, but he squeezed her hand a little bit harder. The pain made her gasp, cutting off her words. The president ordered that we allow that woman's triangles to hatch. We can't locate the next gate. Therefore, we can't afford to kill something that might have that information. We can't sacrifice our own citizens, goddammit! Wake up, Dr. Montoya. America sacrifices her own all the time. Always has, always will. We sacrificed enough of my friends in Vietnam. We have a volunteer army now, do, Margaret said. It's not the same thing. We don't have the draft anymore. Which will last exactly as long as there are enough troops to fight the engagements we have. Do removed the bloody gauze and tossed it into a wastebasket. He pressed another batch in place, held it with his left thumb, then pulled out a suture kit with his right hand. He tore it open with his teeth and set it next to the keyboard. The very second we face a big enough threat, you know damn well that draft will be back, he said. The few die so the many can live. That woman in there, she needs to die for the same reason. I don't give a shit, Margaret said. I'm not military. I am a doctor, and I do not sacrifice people. I'm going over your head. Do removed the second batch of gauze, which was less bloody than the first. He pinched her torn skin together picked up the pre-threaded needle, and slid it through the flesh. His hands were rough but warm, gentle. She watched his technique, smooth, experienced. You've done this before? Do nodded. Sugar, I've done this while people were trying to kill me. I've done it to myself while people were trying to kill me. This here's just a little old barroom brawl cut. Where did you learn to punch like that? Boxer size. Margaret said. I've never actually hit anyone in my life. Do nodded again. You go over my head and you're out, he said as he made the second stitch. It's not a threat to say you'll be put in solitary confinement till this thing is all over. I say it's not a threat because I know you don't care about punishment or pissing anyone off. I don't. Do made a third stitch. Still, that's what'll happen. You'll be off the case and someone else will take over. Maybe that Dr. Chapman fella. Maybe your old buddy Dr. Chang. Do made the fourth stitch, then looked her in the eyes. His face was only a few inches from hers. She felt his hands moving. He was tying off the stitch by feel alone. Whoever it is, they won't know as much as you, Margaret. They're going to have to spend time catching up, time we don't have. And they will probably miss something that could make all the difference. She looked away. He was right. We don't know what's coming through those gates, Dew said. But whatever it is, it would have already come through if it wasn't for you. Thanks to your weather theory, we may even find the source of the infection. If it's a satellite, we might be able to shoot it down. That's because of you, Margaret. We can't do this without you. But do. That woman, it's going to be horrible. He nodded slowly. Yeah, it will. But we need to know. You're playing in the big leagues now, and part of the game at this level is knowing when you have to make a sacrifice. That's easy for you to say, Margaret said. That's what you're good at, right? 
Dew smiled. It was a smile full of bitterness. Among the best, I'm told. Kind of a dubious honor. Look, Doc, no matter what you say, what you do, or who you talk to, Bernadette Smith is going to die. All you can do is put up a useless protest and be pulled off the project. You get to keep your integrity, but at what cost to the country? To humanity. Tell me you understand that part at least. She did understand. Any protest would just be ignored, accomplish nothing. The Murray Longworth machine would roll over her. Things would continue, only less effectively. And as much as it made her hate herself, she wasn't going to let a wasted gesture take her off this project. I get it, she said. If you think Gutierrez is making this call on a whim, if you think it's easy for Otto and me to execute it, then you're a fool. I hope you never have to make a call like this, Margaret. But if you do, you just remember, is one life worth the lives of hundreds, of thousands? We don't know that sacrificing Bernadette Smith is going to save hundreds of lives, or even one life. Do nodded. Exactly. We don't know, and that's why a decision like this is such a mindfuck. He stood up and started repacking the first aid kit. Her hand was already bandaged. She hadn't even felt it. Had a few different cards been dealt, Dew Phillips could have been a world-class surgeon. He started to walk out, then turned to face her. So, shall I get Dr. Chapman to run things, or will you do your job? She hated him. She hated him more than she thought it possible to hate a human being, and almost as much as she hated Clarence Otto. I'll do it, she said. That bitter smile again. Dew walked out of the control room, leaving Margaret alone to think about the coming nightmare. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is now what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. 
Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. All you need is love. Colonel Charlie Ogden stood in the command tent, looking over the maps and satellite photos spread across a central table. Corporal Cope sat on a stool. He had the forward-leaning posture of a bird of prey, waiting to pounce on Ogden's next order. Ogden wondered if he'd even get his customary four hours of sleep that night. Probably wasn't time for it. And if he couldn't sleep, neither could Corporal Cope. Poor guy. But Cope was a young man. He didn't really need sleep. Sleep was for pussies. Ogden checked his watch. 21.30. Corporal! Yes, sir? Any word from Doc Harper about Private Climber? Nothing yet, sir, Cope said. How long ago was Harper in here? About 12 hours, Colonel. How long does it take to wake up from being shot in the fucking shoulder? I wouldn't know, sir, Cope said. I can look it up online if you like. It was a rhetorical question, Corporal. Yes, sir. Maybe the kid did need some sleep after all. Corporal, any hits from the satellite search? No, sir, Cope said. I'm all over him as you requested. I'm on a first-name basis with the squints now, sir, although the name they have for me when they take my calls every 15 minutes isn't Jeff, if you know what I mean. The squints were annoyed with thoroughness? Well, fuck them. They weren't on the front lines. Ogden sipped lukewarm coffee, staring, thinking. He'd expanded the search area, applied every available resource, and still no sign of a gate. All the previous outbreaks had resulted in a construct somewhere within about 100 miles. Granted, a 100-mile radius made for a huge area, but they had dozens of air assets and dedicated satellite coverage. If something was there, they should have found it. What really worried him, however, was the Jewell family. Ogden had no doubt the Jewels were at least partially responsible for the deaths of his men. So far, the APB hadn't turned up a thing. So where had they gone? The tent flap opened. A soldier walked in, shirtless, wearing boots, fatigues, and a white bandage around his left shoulder. In his right hand, he carried his M4. Speak of the devil, Corporal Cope said. Dustin, how you feeling? Fine, Dustin said. I'm here to see the colonel. Ogden put down his coffee mug. You're wounded, son, and you're out of uniform. I told Doc Harper I'd come to see you. That's okay, colonel, Dustin said. I came for you. You're the one we need. You get your ass back to bed, Private Climber, Ogden said. I'll talk to you there. I don't want you out of Doc Harper's sight, understood? Climber stood tall and gave an exaggerated salute. Sir, yes, sir! Doc Harper is right outside, sir! The kid was acting strange. Painkillers? Climber walked closer to Corporal Cope. The tent flap opened again and two men entered. Doc Harper and Nurse Brad. Doc Harper's nose was broken, white bone jutting up from a red gash. And yet he was smiling. Nurse Brad was smiling as well, his mouth hanging open at a strange angle. Drool dripped from his jaw, swinging in a long, glistening strand when he moved. Sir! Climber screamed. We are here on a recruiting trip, sir! 
We want you to be all you can be. It all clicked home. How could he have been so stupid? Rosnowski had let Clymer live. The gunshot to the shoulder had just been camouflaged to keep Clymer under the radar as the disease took him over. That meant the disease was now contagious. Charlie Ogden reached for his sidearm. Nurse Brad and Doc Harper rushed forward. Dustin Clymer whipped his M4 in a horizontal arc, catching the slow-reacting Corporal Cope in the throat. Cope fell off of his stool, coughing. Ogden fired two shots. The first one went wide. The second one hit Doc Harper right in the forehead, just as Brad connected with the flying tackle. Nurse Brad was a big, strong, young soldier, and the hit rattled Ogden's middle-aged body. As they crashed to the ground, Ogden heard Clymer rushing toward them. Ogden tried to bring the gun around, but Brad grabbed his wrist with both hands. With his free hand, Ogden jammed his thumb into Brad's right eye. The eyeball popped, spilling clear fluid onto Ogden's hand. Nurse Brad didn't let go. He didn't stop drooling. He didn't even stop smiling. Another hand tore the gun free and pinned Ogden's arm to the ground. Something slammed into his stomach, and he suddenly found himself unable to draw a breath. Ogden tried to kick, tried to pull, but he couldn't breathe, couldn't fight against the two young soldiers pinning him down. Clymer's face seemed to float over his own, backlit by the tense lights. Sir, yes, sir, Clymer said. I want you to get your mind right, sir. Ogden felt hands on the sides of his head, holding it so he couldn't turn in either direction. Clymer straddled his chest. His right hand held Ogden's forehead, pinning his head to the ground. Clymer's other hand grabbed his chin, hard, and pulled his mouth open. Then Clymer leaned forward, leaned close. Ogden would have said, what the fuck are you doing, if he could have breathed, if he could have moved his mouth, but he couldn't do either. All he could do was growl from deep in his throat. Colonel Charlie Ogden saw Clymer's tongue, swollen, covered in blue sores, triangular blue sores. Clymer's lips closed around his own, and Clymer's tongue dove into his mouth. Wide-eyed in shock and confusion, Ogden tried to get away. He tried to bite down, but could not. Clymer's strong hand held his lower jaw open. Ogden felt the hot wetness of Clymer's tongue fishing around inside his mouth. He felt the sting of a hundred needles. Then, he felt the burning. Clymer sat up, looked down at him, wiped his lips with the back of his hand and smiled. Ogden's mouth was on fire. He won't be long now, sir, Clymer said. Not long at all. Welcome to Detroit. Mr. Jenkins, are we there yet? I think we're close, Chelsea, Mr. Jenkins said. Chelsea was tired of driving. She followed along on the map. The long trip from Gaylord, then driving all over the city, looking for just the right place. The Winnebago rolled down an empty St. Aubin Street. Headlights played off abandoned buildings and lit up broken pavement. A light wind blew wisps of snow, invisible until they crossed in front of the headlights, then invisible again as they swept past. Even with a couple of inches of snow, They saw trash everywhere. Newspapers, Dorito bags, chunks of broken wood, 
piles of broken bricks speckled with bits of mortar like ocean rocks dotted with barnacles. You wanted a secret place, Mr. Jenkins said. I think this area will do. This is the kind of Detroit we've been looking for. There's no one down here, Mommy said. It's like a ghost town. You'd think there would at least be homeless, squatters. Winter is hard on them, Mr. Jenkins said. Looks like these buildings don't have electricity, so no heat unless they build a fire. What about gangs? Mommy asked. Will we be safe here? Mr. Jenkins shrugged. Pretty much. Look around you. What are the gangs going to do here? Freeze their asses off, that's what. If we get out of sight and stay out of sight, we should be okay. It's like most cities, I bet. You don't fuck with people, people don't fuck with you. There's that naughty word again, Mr. Jenkins, Chelsea said. Mr. Jenkins hung his head. I'm sorry, Chelsea. The Winnebago turned right on Atwater Street. On their left, a small, mostly empty marina opening onto the Detroit River. Ahead on their right, they saw lone, three-story brick buildings surrounded by vacant lots filled with rubble, broken fences, and tall grasses weighed down by snow. A faded blue band ringed the top of the building, flecked with reddish tan where spots of original brick showed through. The words Globe Trading Company were painted on the blue in faded white letters. Chelsea liked this building. She liked it a lot. What about this place, Mr. Jenkins? Looks like there's no one here, he said. It's all boarded up. Could be some bums inside, but if so, we can take care of them. Is there... Chelsea searched for the words that Chauncey had given her. Is there lots of concrete? Is there rebar? Metal? Those things will make it hard to see us from space. Oh, sure, Mr. Jenkins said. There'll be lots of that. Good, Chelsea said. I think the dollies will like it here. Let's go inside and look. Okay, Mr. Jenkins said. Let's drive around the building and look for a door we can open up. We need to pull the Winnebago inside or the police will see it in the morning. The Winnebago turned right on Orleans, and its headlights lit a man in the middle of the street. He was dressed in only a t-shirt and jeans, shivering like mad. Even in the dim headlights, they could see that his fingers were swollen and raw. Behind the man, they saw the rear of a squat, jet-black motorcycle, caked with frozen sludge, dirt, and even some ice. Holy shit, Mr. Jenkins said. It's freezing outside. That guy was riding a Harley? Is that an Ohio plate on that thing? Look at his fucking fingers. Language, Chelsea said. Sorry, Chelsea, Mr. Jenkins said. She reached out. The man's name was Danny Corvez. He had lived in a town called Parkersburg. That was a long ways away, and he was cold to the point where he would soon die. Mr. Jenkins, Chelsea said, go get that man and bring him inside. We need him to warm up. She didn't want Mr. Corvez to be cold. After all, if he felt cold, so would the nine dollies growing inside him. Now that she had enough of them, she knew how long it would take to build the gate. Construction would begin almost as soon as the dollies hatched. And that moment was only a few hours away, sometime around dawn. Day 7 Lead from the front. Agony. Heat. Brutal shooting pain. His whole body on fire. His brain on fire. Was he in hell? 
Charlie Ogden had caused enough death to qualify, both the enemy and his own men. How many enemy soldiers? His best guess was over a 1,000. The kill ratio in Somalia and Iraq had been so ridiculously high that it was hard to keep track. The exact number didn't matter, did it? Thou shalt not kill. One death was the price of admission to hell. Everything else was just overachieving. A snippet of a picture flashed through his mind. Something black, wiggling. A snake? A centipede? The heat in his brain grew even higher, which was impossible because it couldn't get any higher. Ogden heard himself screaming, or at least trying to, but something in his mouth muffled his sounds. The picture again. Not a snake. A tentacle. A hatchling. Were they here to kill him? To take revenge? Hello. A voice. More pictures. More images. Hatchlings. Hundreds of them. Building something. Making something. Something beautiful. Something holy. The heat went yet higher. Ogden felt his brain tearing. ACDC had once sung that hell ain't a bad place to be, yet Ogden knew that was some crazy shit because he would have done anything to escape this endless agony. Can you hear me? The voice. The voice of an angel coming for him. The heat seemed to drop. Just a little, but even that tiny bit felt like a miracle. Ogden made a noise that was supposed to be a yes, but through the gag, it sounded like, yay! Hands touching his head, his hot head. The gag, lifting. Fresh breath in his lungs. A foul taste on his thick, sore tongue. Can you hear me? Yes, Ogden whispered. Was the voice making the heat fade away? He loved that voice. Good. We need you. Ogden felt hands lifting him, setting him in a chair. He looked around. There was Corporal Cope, beaming with love. There was Nurse Brad, drooling, smiling, a saggy-lidded socket where an eye used to be. There was Dustin Clymer, grinning, nodding as if he and Ogden shared a secret. They did share a secret, the best secret the world had ever known. Ogden took a deep breath trying to handle the new emotions ripping through his soul. What do you need me to do? What you were born to do, protect the innocent. Ogden nodded. Protect the innocent. He'd done that his whole life. We need your men in Detroit, the voice said. You must hurry, but be careful. The devil will try and stop you. Stop you so he can get to me. Ogden shook his head. Cope and Clymer shook theirs as well. They won't get you, Charlie said. I won't let them. Good. Bring your weapons. Bring your men. But the men, they don't all feel like this. I think some won't see. Then you must show them love. Hurry. Please, hurry. The voice seemed to wash away in a mental wind. It faded, but the love did not. Charlie Ogden knew what he had to do. He looked at Dustin Clymer. How long did it take for me to see the light? Clymer checked his wristwatch. You went under at 2135, sir. It's 0430, so about seven hours. It only took Corporal Cope four hours to convert. Maybe because he's younger, sir. Ogden knew. He knew exactly when the gate would open. 
Chelsea had pushed that information into his head, a ticking clock to the beginning of heaven. He had a little over 52 hours to make it all happen. Corporal Cope, Ogden said, order all troops confined to barracks. Order 1st Platoon to prevent access or egress from camp. No one gets in or out, not even a four-star general. Order 2nd Platoon to conduct detainment drills. They are to immobilize all men in 3rd and 4th Platoons. Tie them to their bunks, hands and feet. Inform all squad leaders from 3rd and 4th Platoons to cooperate without hesitation that I'm evaluating the ability to restrain large numbers of able-bodied individuals. After this is complete, 1st Platoon is to return to their barracks and wait for further orders. Yes, sir, Corporal Cope said. He moved to the radio. Ogden turned to Clymer. How many of us are there now? Just us four, including you, sir. Ogden nodded and checked his watch. It would take about an hour to restrain 3rd and 4th platoons and show them God's love. Add four to seven hours for the gestation period, and he'd have the first 60 men fully converted a little after noon. His Domrec men owned the airport. They could control all movement in and out. Gaylord was still evacuated. The only problems he might face would come from the police, emergency workers, or the media. Reporters were undoubtedly outside the checkpoints, waiting to come in with lights blazing and cameras rolling. He'd have to take his men out at night, using the same back roads they'd guarded since yesterday. Corporal Cope! Colonel? Start planning logistics, Ogden said. At 2,300 hours, I'm taking platoons 3 and 4 to Detroit. Climber, you make sure platoons 1 and 2 complete the conversion process. By tomorrow, they need to be ready to head to Detroit when I call them. Yes, sir, Climber said. Well, that leaves Whiskey Company, Cope said. What about them, sir? The 120 fighting men of Whiskey Company. A wrinkle in his plans. He could convert them, but that would take more time. Add risk. Might be best just to avoid them. Leaving them at the Gaylord Airport, even after he moved all of X-Ray Company to Detroit, would maintain appearances for Murray and the Gaylord police. Not for long, of course, but now everything was about buying a few hours of discretion here and there. Tell Captain Lodge that Whiskey Company is to immediately take over all roadblock work and interaction with law enforcement, Ogden said. Whiskey Company is not to interact with anyone from X-Ray Company. Tell Captain Lodge about our detainment drills and that I need to test Whiskey Company's ability to operate solo. He and Nails can handle things just fine. That'll buy us about a day, maybe two, before anyone notices I'm gone. Yes, sir. Come to think of it, Cope, you better stay here with Clymer, Ogden said. Everyone knows your voice, knows you deliver my orders. Who can come with me and operate as my communications man? The most skilled would be Corporal Kenny Johnson, sir, Cope said. But to be honest, he's not too bright. He'll have to do, Ogden said. Make sure he's in the next batch to be converted. Now, get cracking. Ogden leaned over the table, staring at the map of Michigan. He could create only so many protectors in the next 46 hours, and that number paled in comparison to the forces he would face. Despite the odds, he had to find a way to win. It would take strategy. Grand strategy. The kind that would put you in the history books forever. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author. 
Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.